0: Can somebody just freeze the world for a minute so that I have a chance to go around and meet all the new faces? I think I can see new faces. Actually, I can't tell. I can't really see very well, and the lights are dark. But welcome to ANC this morning. Can you feel that we're starting to move towards filling a room? Look around you. This was hundred times more people than we had for most of the last eighteen months. So it's really good to see you. It's a mystery to us why millennials are back, uh, but all the people my generation, burpos, except for the burpos and us. Um, <laughs> Everybody, our generation is like so over church, and explain that to me, because George Barna would argue that it's the millennials who are over it. I don't know. We're going to come out of this thing, and we're going to flap our wings, even if they're wet, and we're going to see what we can do in the new year. We will not go against wisdom, discretion, and science. We won't do it for that reason, but our calculation is that most of our kids will be able to have their second round of vaccine, for which we're grateful to God and the people who produced it, by the second week of January, so... Get ready to fight for your seat again. I think we're going to be in that situation. We will most likely open with two, we will open with two services, yet yeah, nobody fights Juan for one seat. <laughs> Juan's all tight in his seat. Juan's got it. What a charmed life, Juan. Um, I'm just glad Juan's still chiming in. You know, for those of you who watch our broadcast that we put up online, um, where we just deliver it right to camera the way we did in the beginning of covid uh, you miss those things like Juan chiming in. So get yourself in your Prius and come and see us because it happens in the building. That's my favorite one line. The only other good idea I ever had than that, jump in your Prius and come and see us, was the, lo- was the slogan, music saves. And that's the truth, that's how I feel during COVID, y'all. Were it not for the music of David Ramirez and Sean McConnell, were it not for the music of um, Anias Mitchell, were it not for Night Traveler, where are you, Jesse? Uh, were it not for the midnight, I don't think I would have, th- there just aren't enough things at the beginning of a day that feel meaningful to me, and if I can't reach for music to find transcendence, then, then, then I'm stuck. That's how, that's how thin it has been. Winslets are shaking their heads. Who's your favorite? No pressure. No pressure. Bring it. The whole world's watching. Come on. Lone Bellow. Did you, were you in the room when they were here? Transcendent show y'all missed. If you don't know what the O4 Center is doing, you're missing out. That show, above all shows that I've seen in this room, the roof literally lifted. You have to you have to pay attention. So music does save. Anything can that courses with the life of God. And so just relax about where you're drawing life from and just just be awake in the world. We're desperate for things that matter at this point. Am I talking to anyone today? Anyone? Do not spoil the F1 event in Abu Dhabi. I will choke your face. In Texas, we do awkward word formulas. I will choke your face, we say. Which, I don't know how you do that, but don't spoil it. Everything rides on one day mark. Don't spoil it. We have a text thread, and I have to tell them spoilers off because most of them are lazy, Jeremy, and they sit home. They watch us while they watch the race. Okay, you don't know what I'm talking about. That's fine. No sweat. So good morning. Good morning. You don't get that online, so we're going to do that here in the room. I have, I have missed the energy of people, and so be ready to be quizzed about your favorite band. Because you never know, Chris, when I'm going to just put you on the spot. Deep breath. So I don't think I intended uh, this to be as heavy and somber of a preaching series for Advent. I don't think that was my intention. In fact, I'm not sure I intended this to be a preaching series at all. We do preaching series generally during the summer. We prepare for them. And sometimes we say, this isn't going to be a series. This is going to be a series of one-offs. But my brain seems to only stack rocks. And so here we are in this interesting time. Here's one thing I know to be true, and there's fewer than there used to be. But here's one: it's that when one, one never quite can tell what one is going to see in the mirror of a sacred text, if we bring ourselves honestly, earnestly, and open heartedly to that text, you never know what you're going to see. And as the great seasons of the church, uh, boasting the same scriptures year, year after year, can 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 tell us, you can turn to the same thing multiple times and see different things. You never know what you're going to see. But when you, when you approach it honestly and earnestly and open-heartedly, it can reveal amazing things to you. That, of course, the, the definition of a sacred text in my mind is any text that has an ability to reveal something unseen, something previously unseen, something that was always there, but something that we needed to see now. That's what a sacred text is. And some of you need to hear me say this as simple as this, and so I'm just going to say it. The answer is yes, any text can be sacred, if it unlocks you, if it undoes you, if it unfolds you in some unexpected way. Any text. Loosen up, Christian school kids. Any text. Hear me, it can be Auden or Elliot or Jensen McRae songs, lyrics, it can be David Ramirez, it can be Sean McConnell, it can be Rumi or Oprah, or it can be your old, fan, old friend Trace Shelton, it doesn't matter. What makes a text or a conversation or an insight sacred is how it reveals to us something new, yet something already true about ourselves. So, hear me, follow every text, follow any text that moves you in the direction of more of you revealed to you. And if that feels counterintuitive, let me remind you this morning that you are where God resides. We're in Advent after all. You are where God resides. That, of course, being probably the tightest summary of Advent that I can give you. So, no judgment if you need to go online and set up your grocery order now. That's the tweet. Listen. What I'm saying is no mystery to you. You've always known this to be true. You know life when you find it. And of course, I know that you were told not to trust other people's sacred texts. You were told that philosophy was misleading and that a a Joan Osborne song uh, wasn't spiritual and that, that what happens to you when you go see Bonnie Raitt and James Taylor live wasn't something you could trust. I know you were taught that what happens in your soul at an Amanda Gorman poetry reading was fundamentally fickle and secular and somehow untrustworthy, but you've always known better. You know life when you feel it. Somebody at least groan half out loud. Life is life no matter where it crops up. All things can be sacred. All things in some way are sacred, I would argue. And I love to remind you to trust yourself to find those things. I love to watch a new light go off behind your eyes. I love to hold space in this little space as burdens fall away from you, from your weary heart, as you release things you couldn't carry anyhow. I get to do the same for myself. That's what we do in this place. Here's the tightest way to say it. Divine life courses through all veins, no exceptions. Can you see it? That's the question. Of course, it's gonna be more mundane, a little more easily overlooked. It'll be more accessible to more people than you expected, but that's okay. We don't easily see God in us. Oh, but we're in Advent, which is why this time of year is such a powerful opportunity around which to gather and recenter again. We need it over and over again. So I started this Advent series with a simple question, simple ambition. It was my goal to thoughtfully remind you that this is everyone's story. This isn't just our Christmas story. This is everyone's story. This idea that God is made of stuff that we can touch, and therefore we are what we seek because God is in us, that's way too big for a single tradition. I don't know where you think that fits, but it probably never did. This isn't the heart of Christianity, friends. This is the heart of how the whole cosmos hangs together. I wonder, are you beginning to see that differently now? Can you see the universal scope of the story of Mary and Joseph and Jesus and the unusual star in the heavens that spoke something compelling to Zoroastrian priests from across the desert in Persia? Who could own such a story? What value could there possibly be in attempting to contain that within our tradition only? (laughs) The simple story... This simple story isn't something upon which religious ideologies can be built. No, no, it's the kind of revelation that undoes tribal ideologies altogether. Go ahead and let it float. Let it go. Mary is no one, if not everyone. The same is true for Joseph, and the same is true for Jesus, and the same is true for you, and the same is true for Mises, or me. I don't know. thought I might try to rhyme that there. So yes, hear me clearly, there are sacred elements in all stories. But let me add this little caveat This particular story, friends, no matter how familiar after all these years, still remakes me daily. More than anything I have ever found access to, this story connects. So even though the field now looks like Swiss cheese after all these years of drilling in this same field, it's still producing oil as far as I can tell. At least it is for me. I hope the same is true for you. I'm still looking here because I'm still finding so your progressive preacher who is open-minded and science-driven and postmodern and post-literal and post-patriarchal and inquisitive beyond all practicality for anyone's purposes is still, your preacher is still unashamedly anchored in this beautiful and ancient story. And I hope that brings you comfort. This is still my home. I'm okay if it's not yours. Seek wholeheartedly. You will find. I trust that. But this is where you're going to find me during this time of year. This stuff bends me towards love and justice and goodness and a deeper awareness. And so let's read our text today from Luke chapter 3. It actually picks up right where we left off last week in verse 7. And we're going to, it's a bit of a long text. I'm going to offer a little bit of commentary in between. But just follow along on the screen. This, of course, is John the Baptist again, our favorite preacher. Verse 7, John said to the crowds that came out to, bat, to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, <laughs> who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is laying at the, lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire welcome to Christmas. Doesn't look anything like a Marshall Fields window. Oops, sorry, Macy's now. Doesn't look anything like that, does it? Welcome to Christmas. We have snakes and wrath and we have fire and axes. Like my friend Elier says, what the even heck, (laughs) y'all? Maybe it gets better. Maybe we should keep reading. Let's, Let's look forward in verse 10. And the crowds asked him, asked John, what then shall we do? Reminds me of Francis Schaeffer. In reply, he said to them, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. Okay, so I'm beginning to see what you mean here. So no, uh, we're going to work on nakedness and hunger and sharing things together. That sounds cool. Maybe the sermon is beginning to take shape. He goes on in verse 12, even tax collectors came to be baptized, which should scandalize you if, if you can't remember. They were the most hated of the people of the time, right? Even tax collectors came to be baptized and they asked him, teacher, what should we do? He said to them, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Okay, I get it, right? So no more theft or extortion, no more upcharge or inflation. Fantastic. I'm starting to see an ethic take shape here. Verse 14, soldiers also asked him, maybe slightly more hated even than the tax collectors. And what should we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats of false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. Satisfied with your wages. Anyone? Anyone in the room? Could Anyone? Is that a sentence that describes anyone ever? <laughs> satisfied with your wages. That feels like a hard ask. I mean, that's none of us. What? What's that? Not what up for. That's not what they signed up for. That's right. Chronically underpaid. That's us. That's the crowd. Raise your hand if you know that's the truth satisfied with your wages. That's fantastic. So anyway, here we have three groups of people mentioned specifically. We have crowds, that feels general, tax collectors, and soldiers. And they each ask the same question, what do we do now? Notice that John has nothing to say about the temple or ritual cleanliness, nothing about religion whatsoever. Instead, he prescribes justice and mercy. He recommends generosity and honesty. Baptism and repentance alone won't do. Ironically, this is the man who begged for baptism as a way to prepare. Action is required, will say John. And those gathered apparently liked what they heard, because watch what happens next in verse 15. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might actually be the Messiah. John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. In other words, if you think water is neat, wait till you see the breath of God, which would be another way to translate Holy Spirit in this text. Wait till you see the wind of God and fire. Now, just a small observation here. If I've got to sign up for both water and fire, can I take the fire first and the water next to put out whatever the fire lit on fire? That maybe That's just my, my mind looking here. That's my opinion. So moving on, and we're going to wrap this here in two verses. Verse 17, and this gets a little technical. John says, His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Oh, maybe this is the point of the fire that John is talking about. So with verse 18, so with many other exhortations, this is Luke writing now, remembering, he proclaimed the good news to the people. Okay, so there's a lot going on here. It's a long passage. It's a classic Advent passage. A lot of it we, don't, we just don't have time to focus on, just to bring us up best recalled it. And it's an awkward sermon, Honestly. John wasn't known for gentle teaching or for leading the campfire in a rousing verse of Kumbaya. But I'm still willing to assume that these ideas can somehow further prepare us, they can ready us for the birth of God on the margins of our world, or else the lectionary wouldn't include them at this point in Advent. I just trust that they do, that it will. You see, we are all manger bound now, all of us, excluding none. And our work today will be to figure out how this call to repentance, this warning that, uh, about fire might prepare us to face again our hopes and our disappointments, our joys and despairs, how it is that God and human flesh could be both located within the same cell wall. Today, our soundtrack is a curious crowd asking decent questions in a strained voice of a prophet by the side of a river that's our soundtrack today. But in a few weeks, we'll have the background noise of bleeding and lowing and weird acts of foreign worship, all while the tears of teenage parents stain the hay that does what it can to provide anything it can akin to warmth and comfort to, to, to a tiny God and a, a, a pair of terrified caregivers. And I wonder if we're ready. You see, we rush through these things. Perhaps we should hear John out. Maybe there's something to be gleaned here. You see, John was popular at this point. He was a popular figure, and he could gather a crowd, that's for sure, which is funny to me because he welcomes them with this sort of weird, shocking question. Who told you to repent, you bunch of snake babies? That's what he means by brood of vipers. He's not calling them snakes. He's calling them the offspring of snakes. That's probably worse. Who told you to repent? Who told you to get out of the way of the swinging axe of God? to which more than one, I'm sure, whispered under their breath, well, you did, John. Ironically, you did. John makes it clear there is nothing particularly heroic or righteous about repentance if it doesn't become action immediately. Words and action must align. They belong together like God and human flesh, you see. In other words, coming out to the river to see what all the fuss was about (laughs) wouldn't amount to anything at all. Unless these same people could figure out how to turn back, go back to their villages, and build lives on something more than words, fruit is required. It's the constant metaphor of Scripture, or the tree will be pruned. And sensing the pushback from the crowd, John adds, and forget finding comfort and safety in your pedigree or your family history. Being a child of Abraham will no longer be enough. Activists now, driven by justice and generosity, that's the type of people that John is gathering. I think it would be hard to leave an assembly like this and wonder what to do next. John was full of practical examples of how to follow through. He wasn't asking the people to believe something. Belief can be disembodied, you see. Ideas can be ethereal, uh, uprooted, but justice cannot, neither can generosity. John is a practical prophet, if nothing else. So, repentance. That's what we're being asked to consider now. Repentance, which John will go on to say is not yet real until accompanied by action. You might think of it this way. If something works for me, but it doesn't actually work for you as my neighbor, then it doesn't actually work for either, we will say John. What John describes has nothing to do with shame or humiliation or paying for someone's sins. That's not what he means by repentance. It's not enough to just be aware of wrongdoing. He's not talking about awareness. True repentance actually alleviates suffering. It doesn't stop at belief or thinking differently. It's about unburdening. It's about unblending from small, self-centered stories that leave others out. It's actually a gift. I don't know what comes up in you when you hear the word repentance, but every youth camp I was ever at just leaps to the surface at once. It's actually a gift. Repentance in the world of John the Baptizer is about getting free and traveling light. It's about seeing all people as yourself, which might be why he tells the crowd, water won't be enough, friends. This work will require fire which probably felt shocking to them who were listening. I hope it still feels shocking to us. But I think we know John is right. This is the only way forward now. We travel way too heavy, you see. We've always done it. Everything must be released. Everything must fall in order to rise. Everything must die to become new life. Fire kills, oh, but fire sets free. And this is good news. But it isn't easy news and it certainly isn't comfortable to deliver or receive. John gives us hard questions and he gives us wrath and axes and fire and snakes. My paraphrase of this whole passage might be this. Hey guys, you come out here to listen to me, a prophet from the wild places, and you go down in the water and you come up clean. Well, listen, that's just the beginning. The guy I'm trying to get you to open your hearts and minds for is going to dunk you in fire, not just water. Which is one way to thin a crowd. But don't forget, hear me clearly, if these are God's flames, if this comes from the spirit of the divine, if this comes from the Holy Spirit of God, these will not be flames of anger or destruction. This fire of the spirit of God has a much bigger purpose than just to cause suffering and loss. The purifying fire of God indeed is suffering at first, but it sets us free. It does that for you and it does that for me. Free of what, you might be asking? Oh, just everything we don't need to be burdened with anymore. that's all. Just everything. I don't know about you. But suddenly, I'm starting to see how this might connect, how this sermon on the side of a river might connect to our advent journey. Remember, the burning bush from the book of Exodus in the Old temple in the Old Testament? this is the, the thought that came up in my mind. Do you remember when God first spoke to Moses, he owned his imagination, he moved into his mind and he camped out there with a bush that was on fire, but it wasn't consumed. Do you remember the story? This was what Moses most needed to know about God when he was first learning to trust that he wasn't a killer like other deities. This God could purify and preserve simultaneously. Simultaneously. I wonder if this might be a useful reminder for us today as we speak of the fire of God. The fire of God can purify, it can liberate, it can set us free, while it somehow also preserves and protects the essence of original goodness of who we are. No matter what you were taught, God's goal has never been to destroy or harm or condemn the world. The axe at the root of the tree never threatens what produces life. It removes what doesn't, and God wants everything to produce life. John offers water with which to wash because it's important to be reminded that our bodies have already been declared clean by love and that verdict isn't still out. In case you were wondering, that's the final word, but Jesus will bring fire, fire to remove what doesn't produce life. The end result of both water and fire are the same. It's freedom on both counts. You see, we're going somewhere together, and everyone is welcome manger side, soldiers, tax collectors, Jews, nameless members of the crowd, all of us were welcome, everyone. But our burdens won't belong there. Our burdens don't fit in that little cave where love takes on flesh. We belong there, but the things we carry do not, friends. And I don't know what burdens you carry. I don't know what weighs you down, friend, if it's sadness, if it's anger, if it's rage, if it's fear. I'm only just beginning to understand what burdens and weighs me down. I've spent so many years blended with those things that discovering who I am without them feels like dying in a way, but it also feels like finding freedom in a way. And such is the invitation to repent, to release, to recreate, to rebuild, and then and only then to rise unburdened and free. Oh, God, I hope your heart wants that. Advent 1 reminded us that all things released can be reborn. Advent 2 reminded us that whatever highway might be required to make our journey home to the heart of love a little easier, whatever smooth paths or straight ways might be needed to thread through the rugged heights and the rocky depths that God is on it. God prepares. God restores. It's all about homecoming. It always has been. And Advent 3 is a reminder that fire is coming. It is. It's coming. It's coming to take from us the things that no longer serve us, baptism in the fire of the spirit of god is about lightening our loads about setting us free about burning away the chaff about separating us from everything except the seed that reproduces new life oh friends what could be true about us if we were indeed free let your mind wander just for a second and as we close this morning i offer you one final word picture and it's the one john uses at the end of this discourse with those who were gathered at the river Describing the purpose of the fire that Jesus brings to the world, John says this in verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary, Into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now in the time before the reign of machinery, a farmer would gather the crop on a threshing floor, the wind would blow through, would blow through and the whole goal was to separate the seed from the outer parts of the plant that wouldn't reproduce new life. And whatever was left over was burned. Whatever this means or whatever this doesn't mean, it must be good news. Luke says so as he closes this pericope in verse 18. But if this isn't about God destroying with fire and wrath those who struggle to bear fruit, those who struggle to make their word and deed align, if this isn't about God's anger, then what is it about? Oh, friends, this is about God removing the parts of us that hold us back, that distract and beguile, that confuse and mislead. This is about unburdening now. We are not at risk of being rejected by God if we struggle to engage justice and generosity. That's always going to be a struggle. It will always be on a continuum. We are not at risk of being rejected by God if we struggle to manage the gap between our words and our actions. We have just some more stuff to lay down, that's all. There's more unburdening to be done, that's the point. We are already accepted in the beloved. If you don't believe me, say it to yourself until you can believe it. We are already accepted in the beloved. God already found our hearts worthy of habitation. Repentance isn't the threat. It's an invitation to be free, to walk unburdened. And so John, for your fiery sermon at the side of a river and Luke, for your memory of what happened that day, we are grateful. We are grateful as travelers on our way to Bethlehem now to be reminded to let go of what we could never carry anyway. And in case this thought overwhelms you, in case your mind races to all the things you've built wrong in your life, all the things built on the wrong algorithms and arrangements, in case you're overwhelmed and you're wondering where to start, how to begin the work of unburdening, I offer you these words from Sarah Blondin, a great spiritual teacher. Millions follow her around the world. In a meditation she has on Insight Timer, she writes these, she says these words. And hear me, do not worry yourself too much with how you will ultimately arrive at your freedom. For it is the work of magic and miracle. All you must worry yourself with is listening intently to the part of you that is not interested in staying in suffering anymore. All you must worry yourself with, dear one, is listening intently for the part that already knows what you must do to arrive at the door of your awakening. You already long to be more alive. You can trust yourself to do what needs to be done next you know exactly what to release next. Oh, what good news this is. And I don't know if you needed to hear it this morning, but I sure did, so thank you for indulging me in public. (laughs) Join me on your feet if you're able. I think every Advent prayer is a variation of the same. I think it's as simple as let it be, let it be, let it be. I would invite you to close your eyes right now and perhaps in that simple biomechanical way of saying, I surrender, just tilt your palms to heaven and say, be born in me. Help me be unburdened. Help me to walk unblended. And help me to learn to trust that even this humble place is worthy of your habitation. In your name we pray. Amen.